This is the 966, episode 59. Mr. Richard Wilson. Hello, sir. How are Hi, you? Hi, Mr. Lucian Ziegler. How are you? How's, how's everything in your pad? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Uh, things are a little crazy here. End of August. And Richard, we're almost to episode 60, which is very exciting for us. Um, so claps to the team claps. here working on this. A little golf and clap. Th- this is a golf clap because there is no golf in this episode. Is this, that's there, correct. Well, we just mentioned golf. Keeping the street going. No, we got it out of the way early. <laughs> so we're good. Um, Richard, we just want a little programming note. We'll be taking just a little bit of time off, which is actually not any time off because we'll have sort of smaller episodes this week and next week, um, just as we sort of reach the end of August here. So yeah, we, we will be producing content, but we do need a little bit of a break. And then we'll be back in full force in September with a really cool slate of interviews and obviously stimulating conversation between us. So um, just a little programming notes uh, for all of our listeners and viewers out there. And then obviously we have to start with the preamble of please subscribe to us wherever you're getting this, uh, either at YouTube or on any of the 27 Richard Now podcasting platforms where you can find the 966. So please do that. That's pretty cool, huh? That's, That's going up of, like with every episode. How many podcasting platforms are there? I don't know, but every time I look, um, it shows an increase. The other thing that's interesting too, Richard, is we now have listeners in 50 countries, which I saw, and that's very exciting. Um, that's a lot of countries, so I'm sure... Uh, hello to everybody out there um, uh, across <laughs> you know, the world, which is cool. <laughs> we have, we need to learn to say it in each language. Fifty countries—that's truly impressive. I'm not—I'm not kidding. I, I, every, everything's kind of humorous to me, but that is really impressive. That's quite a, a milestone. I'm—that's uh, made my day for sure. It's made my day. Yeah, it's cool to see the numbers go up. I mean, we've said that before, but every time we look, the numbers go up across every platform, and it's really exciting because we did not expect. Uh, this level of audience. So hello, everybody out there. We will be highlighting some of those countries um, maybe next week or the week after um, just uh, to say hello to those people. But anyway, Richard, let's well, get my going. One, my What's one your one big, big thing this week? My one big thing actually covers every country in the world. We won't we won't do a shout out to every one of our 50 country listeners, but uh, and, and not, not this week, but maybe. Yeah, maybe yeah, we'll, uh, work, we'll work them in. <laughs> so uh, my one big thing, Lucian, uh, I kind of feel like I'm in high school recently. Uh, this is the third week in a row. I'm doing, in essence, a book report. Two weeks ago, it was a 78-page Ministry Investments second quarter report. Last week, it was an IMF's 91-page Article 4 consultation for Saudi Arabia. This week, the War and Peace of United Nations publications, the 540-page 2022 World Migration Report. I think it's a problem. I, I come across, well, we, you know, we find an interesting article or story and, and we, you know, check the source material, material, do some research and uh, end up with a book report. So anyway, uh, the 2022 migration report is actually really interesting and I've never looked into one before. And it's, it's, this one is like so many of the publications we're seeing uh, just really well organized and with really top, top level graphics and charts, but top line findings are one, there are around 281 million international immigrant migrants in the world in 2020, which equates to 3.6% of the global population. This is a small minority of the world's population, meaning that staying within one's country of birth remains overwhelmingly the norm. The great majority of people do not migrate across borders. Much larger numbers migrate within countries, although we have seen this slow over the past years due to COVID-19. 
two, since 1970, the U.S. has been the primary country of destination for migrants. Since 1970, the number of foreign-born people residing in the U.S. has more than quadrupled from less than 12 million in 1970 to close to 50.6 million in 2019. Now, uh, Saudi Arabia makes its way into this U.N. Migration, World Migration Report in a number of interesting ways, which obviously is why this book report is in the 966. Uh, the two data points regarding Saudi Arabia and global migration that are especially interesting are uh, the first, in terms of the top destination countries in the world for immigration, Saudi Arabia comes in third with 13 .13 million migrants in 2020, following the U.S. at 43 plus million and Germany at 4.2 million. Ahead of Russia, 11.6, the U.K. 8.9, the U.A.E. 8.4 and France 8.1 million. Second, Saudi Arabia also places third globally in terms of remittances with 34.6 billion in 2020. The U.S. leads at 68 billion. And at number two is. I didn't read the book for the book report, so I don't know. <laughs> it shows your good judgment. But interesting because the UAE is second at 43.2 billion. Oh, um, interesting. Once again, uh, yeah, there'll be a quiz. I didn't tell you there'll be a quiz at the end. Uh, <laughs> So it's just, you know, once again, Saudi Arabia finds itself sort of at the center of an important global phenomenon. You know, we see it with energy, climate matters, regional and global security, uh, finance and investment, and here with migration patterns. So uh, in closing, a couple of quotes from the report. I thought that was interesting. Remember, this is a 540-page report. There's lots of good stuff in here. Quote, long-term data on international migration have taught us that migration is not uniform across the world, but is shaped by economic, geographic, demographic, and other factors resulting in distinct migration patterns, such as migration corridors. The largest corridors tend to be from developing countries to larger economies, such as those of the United States, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Germany. And second one. While it is unclear exactly how migration patterns will be affected, analysis points to significant shifts over time as countries seek to invest in artificial intelligence, AI. These changes are likely to affect many labor markets globally. In a report focusing on Bahrain, Egypt, Kuwait, Oman, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, for example, researchers found that the automation of routine work is particularly relevant to migrant workers in these countries. Uh, in the United Arab Emirates, for example, more than 93% of automation potential uh, automation potentially affects jobs held by migrant workers. Richard, the 966 is now a book club and you read the book report, yeah. you read the book, issue a report. I listen, get slightly smarter. Or the, the listeners listen, get slightly smarter. No, this, this report is really cool. It's very long as you noted, but it does have some incredible data in it. Um, just to add some of the things that I, I, cause I did glance over it. Some of the things I thought were really interesting, the global remittance market, the total number of remittances sent around is $700 billion. That's a lot of money going cross borders. Um, there are a lot of startups, um, and now publicly traded companies that deal specifically in remittances. Um, it used to be Western union. Now it's companies like remitly and other, uh, businesses like that, that service this market, really interesting stuff there. Um, the other thing that I thought it was really interesting about this report, Richard, is that um, on page 27 in <clears throat> figure three, excuse me, um, they, they actually break down the top migration country to country corridors. Um, and mm -hmm. Mexico to Mexico to the United States is number one by a lot. 
um, it's just under 12 million people a year, which, which dwarfs the next, which is Syria to Turkey, um, which that is fascinating. Um, and then Saudi Arabia first comes up, I guess, what, ninth on this list. And the number one des- the number one migrant um, source for Saudi Arabia is India. So it's the India to Saudi Arabia corridor. Um, Richard, also when looking at this, I was sort of thinking about Nitakat and the Saudiization of the labor market. That's still a lot of immigrants and migrants um, coming into Saudi Arabia when Saudi Arabia is actively trying to get Saudis into jobs. Um, so it, it's sort of interesting to think about it in that context. There's still a huge immigrant inflow into Saudi Arabia. Oh, there is. And I think it's interesting in so many ways. And you pick, you know, in figure three, just to go back to this report, one of the it's one of the ways it's really well laid out is it will it will juxtapose patterns. So, for example, if not only have immigration over, you know, in five year intervals, it'll have in the same same chart emigration. So you have you see movements from country to country and you see see that sort of thing. Same thing with remittances, you know, who's receiving them, who's sending them. Uh, and yeah, this was an interesting, uh, so that you, the, the chart you pulled was interesting. That's, you know, referring to the, you know, migration corridors. Um, yeah, it brings up uh, several things, you know, MBS, when we was talking about the line, um, you know, introduced that, not introduced that, but recently when he, he talked about it again, he, he laid out population goals, you know, to have uh, uh, 50 million by 2030, 100 million by, by some I'm not sure what it was, but significant, but 50-50, you know, between expat and Saudi. Obviously those, you know, I don't think he foresees that all being, you know, uh, laborers, but a whole variety of of non-Saudis. Um, and they clearly have, you know, immigration patterns that contribute to, you know, a large expat community. Uh, the other thing is remittances. And this is in, 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 the, in the region, in the Gulf, obviously, this is largely based on the Hawala system, which is an age-old system of how people get money home to their families. Um, you mentioned, you know, Nittakat, but the Hawala system is another system you, I can see being uh, significantly revised and updated and, and becoming digitized in a manner that it isn't uh, now. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, these, you know, as I mentioned, you know, Saudi Arabia finds itself at the heart of significant, you know, global phenomenon. And this is one of them. They, they'll be dealing with migration and, and Nitikad is Saudiization. There's, there won't be, you know, in, if, in terms of the plans that Saudi Arabia has for itself, you know, the native population isn't going to be able to take, you know, pick up all the slack in terms of what's needed in the workforce. So the migration, the, the immigration population, I, I, I expect will grow and evolve and, and we'll see more of it. Yeah, we're going to include a link to this in the um, on the YouTube page. It'll also be in the show notes. It's kind of worth opening up, even if you're just looking at the graphs that are in it. I mean, I'm looking at one right now that shows um, global air travel over time starting in 1945. And then it, it just continually goes up until 2020 when the pandemic hit and just goes straight down. It's kind so of, you, you know, we all knew that, but it's sort of shocking to see. Um, all right, but you just caught the bug. This is see what happens I've when seen, you get into yeah. the support. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff. It's like showing up to book club and wishing you had read the book because everybody's so excited. <laughs> exactly. about oh it. my goodness, this is as good as it was built. <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll put this report up there. I don't. We'll, we'll share a few of these graphics. Um, the report is is really long. It's from the UN, Richard. I think the UN Migration Agency. Um, 
merged with the UN or is a subset with the UN. It's it's uh, in 2016. I, I had the note up here and now I can't find it. But um, this is part of the United Nations, sort of, right? It, the yeah, organization. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a UN. It's a UN International Migration Report. Yeah, cool. Well, it's very it's very comprehensive. Very cool stuff. Um, yeah, check it out. So we'll have a link to that on, uh, if you go, if you're listening to us on as a podcast, if you go to the show page or wherever you hit play, there should be a list of things that say show notes. And in there, there'll be little timestamps. I'm sorry. I always throw these little plugs in there, but there'll be little timestamps that where you can jump directly to a conversation topic if it's interesting to you. And that's usually where we throw all of our links in. So, uh, check that out. And on YouTube, it'll just be right there in the description. Um, if we ever forget, um, we usually get a few commenters who say, do. where is the report you talked about? And I realized why well, I maybe need to sleep a little bit more because I definitely forgot. So very interesting stuff. Richard, my one big thing this week, um, sort of talking a little bit more about the 966. Um, we cover a lot each week and each week there's usually nine topics. And one of them is a conversation or an interview. And then there's really eight separate topics and, and subjects we cover. We have our one big things. We go through yellow where we have smaller segments to talk about issues du jour. Um, but we really cover it all, the economy, policy, topics, both light and serious. Um, the point here is really two things for the 966. We, we do cover stuff that isn't just at the very top of the newspaper, isn't just the top headline stuff that you hear about over and over. Um, Richard, it's interesting because I got, um, and I sent this to you, a Google news update for Saudi Arabia, which both right. of us get twice a day. Um, and it's always sort of cool to see that comparing our own newsletter to it, because I mean, often, and, and especially recently, it's just 10 different sources of, of news items. And, uh, recently once or twice has been all of the same story. And so it's okay. like, okay, so if you want to learn mm -hmm. about Saudi Arabia, that's one story from 10 sources. What we're trying to do here is really you know, get to a lot of different stuff and, and tell the story of Saudi Arabia and, and everything going on because it's just not really talked about. So anyway, my one big thing this week, um, I think is something worth giving a little bit of extra attention to. It is Saudi Arabia's recent conservation efforts, particularly in preserving Arabian wildlife. This week, Saudi Arabia's Royal Commission for Al-Ula, RCU, has announced the arrival of two Arabian leopards who were born in, in a captive breeding program we're going to have some photos of these uh, cubs, which are really cute. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I think everybody could agree on that. Um, yes. And uh, so just really, really exciting news. Um, in February, the kingdom celebrated its first Arabian Leopard Day and is due to continue marking the day annually on the 10th of February to raise awareness about the endangered big cat. The Arabian leopard is a subspecies of leopard native to the Arabian Peninsula and is classified by the International Union for Conservation of Nature's red list as critically endangered. So it's just something that doesn't get a lot of attention. <clears throat> I know that this is a very important cause and issue that is supported by Princess Rima bin Bandar, Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the United States. It's a cause that's very dear to her. Um, she has a nonprofit, Richard, called Catmosphere, which is a catchy name. And uh, last uh, October, I believe it was, they announced the first annual Catwalk, which is a walkathon fundraiser for big cats. Catmosphere is focused on seven big cats and include jaguars, cheetahs, lions, pumas, leopards, snow leopards, and tigers. Um, Richard, you know that I'm a huge cat guy. I guess I'm a small cat guy, um, but I, I absolutely love cats. In addition to this, Richard, and I I'd sort of, we had seen this on social media, but um, haven't really discussed it yet. The famous 
uh, London-based publisher, Asseline Publishing, uh, just launched a new book uh, called The Arabian Leopard, which takes a look at the kingdom's efforts in protecting its endangered wildcats. The book is authored by Andrew Spalton, a wildlife conservationist, and details the history and cultural significance of the Arabian, of the Arabian leopard to the kingdom. Uh, it really, the book is, I, I haven't bought a copy of it yet, but it's actually under $100. And for a coffee table book of this quality from Asseline is actually quite reasonable. You can go to the Asseline website and and we'll have a link to it again. Um, another promise link that'll be in the comments wherever you're seeing this. Um, check the book out. It looks really impressive. Um, in addition to big cats, Richard, Saudi Arabia is working on conservation efforts for the Arabian Oryx the sand gazelle and the Arabian gazelle, all of which became endangered and near extinct um, as Saudi Arabia began to grow and, um, uh, you know, environments became challenged and uh, these animals became displaced. So, um, yeah, my one big thing this week is big cats, Richard. I think it's really cool <laughs> that they're doing this. A lot of this is in conjunction with Al-Ullah. They're really hoping to get the wildlife there back to at, as it was just as they are preserving the monuments and and buildings there so um yeah just a little bit of a curveball um something you may not have read about just very sort of cool work they're doing it probably doesn't get a lot of thank yous around the world but um yeah it's very interesting it is interesting i would add uh, in your list of endangered species is the mountain ibex which you're trying to recover how did i miss that i <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you had a good healthy list but i guess there, of that arabian le le leopard there's only two there are only 200 in existence i mean mm -hmm. it was almost gone and and you mentioned the rcu strategy i guess in in terms of 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 the whole area of alula they're going to turn 80 percent of it into nature reserves and that's not only for animals but wild plants and animals and and wild plants and other things and this is consistent you know there's a growing awareness in in saudi arabia about conservation and also an understanding that uh, parts of their tradition have been lost through modernization and progress so, you know standard issue for any society that's growing and expanding and the arabian leopard being one of them which is endangered um and so they're they're going back because these are these are animals that are you know indigenous to the area were, mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's uh, I think it's telling in how they want to you know move forward that they're trying to do it in this way that is uh, not only you know sensitive to the environment but also a nod to traditions and history for the country itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these big cats, they're very cute, but I imagine them not being fun to encounter in the wild, especially if you oh, are any, anywhere near a food source that they also might be interested in. I always think about that when I look at my cats, that if they were my size, they would just immediately destroy me uh, because they're such athletic predators. But um, this is, I mean, this is, this is really cool. And kudos to Princess Rima for taking this on. Um, it's really neat. And she's, and it's been a consistent thing she's been working on for years now, so... Yeah, she has, um, Princess Rima is, is quite fascinating, well beyond the sort of marquee, which is, you know, here's a first, you know, female ambassador and, a, and a, an ambassador to the U.S. at that, um, uh, extremely accomplished, but she has so many other interests, the Catmosphere being one of them. Um, and, and this is, she's such a natural for this show. And, and because uh, she's a businesswoman, she's done all sorts of, uh, she's, 
she's founded all sorts of uh, ch charities and and uh, things like the um, the uh, Zahra Best Breast Cancer Awareness Association. She's a founding member of that. Founded Al Khair, which is a social enterprise for uh, elevating the professional capital of, of Saudi women. Um, you know, just really an impressive and active and uh, multifaceted individual. This being one of her, her, I think she's obviously very excited about it. She also does hundred brands, and she, you know, you know, this is uh, hundred brands, Saudi brands. This is, and I think this harks back to her business background. Uh, you know, she she has done. Uh, she's founded a women's day spa, day and gym in Saudi. She's um, a founder and creative director of Baraboo, which is a luxury handbag brand. This is this is now this is the top you know Saudi diplomat in the U.S. This is mm -hmm. all her other her previous life, and I'm sure it's ongoing. Hundred brands is again about you know uh, identifying interesting and exciting Saudi brands. She's she's very much involved with. So anyway, uh, I digress. Uh, but the atmosphere and the conservation of wild cats uh, certainly fits with with her in terms of taking up really uh, interesting and 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 interesting projects and trying to make a difference in these key areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, check out Catmosphere and check out the catwalk. I think we will be doing it this year, um, which is cool. Um, that'll be my workout for the fall. That'll be, do you that'll take be what I do with you. Fall. I don't think so. I don't think they'd want to come. They sort of they sort of make the rules around here. And in fact, if one of them pops into the background yeah. here, then sorry. I've about seen that. cats on a lease. I grew up with cats, but as an adult, it's just dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that uh, dogs are are probably cooler. <laughs> I don't know. I don't but, know. Uh, uh, you know, everybody has their choices. All I know is when people say a cat is great, they say it behaves like a dog. That <laughs> couldn't be more true. <laughs> Barry and Joe are like dogs. What's great, though, is you can just leave for a weekend and come back. And as long as there's food there, they will barely miss you. So I kind of <laughs> like that, the sort of low maintenance angle. <laughs> anyway, Richard, <laughs> let's get to uh, let's get to yellow. We're not going to have an interview this week or a conversation this week. We will have one next week. And then we may just only release that. Um, we're still working on it. Um, we're also trying to plan a little time off here. But um, anyway, so we're going to get right into Yella this week uh, for a little shorter episode. Bella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. <laughs> All right. Number we've one. Done that, we've done that 60 times now, Richard, or 59, <laughs> no, 59 times. 59 so, times. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And it's been good every stink. It's, I, when I stop laughing, we, we, we won't do it anymore. Uh, number one, new Saudi companies law 2022 key changes and next steps for companies in KSA. Uh, the National Law Review reports that on June 28, 2022, the Saudi cabinet of ministers approved the new companies law, and it was published in the official Gazette, Um Al Qura newspaper. On July 4th, 2022, the new law will come into effect on or around January 1, 2023, replacing the previous company's law, which was issued in October 2015, and the law of professional companies issued September 2019. So there's, so the law is not totally official yet, but we sort of know some things about it. And that will be, as you just said, released right before the, the law becomes uh into effect, but it removes restrictions on company names, now allows for greater flexibility on naming a company. The new law largely unifies Saudi rules related to commercial companies and introduces a number of new changes to the rules of establishing uh, and the governance of JSCs. Some other things, Richard, these are really um, 
sort of major advances. We say reforms a lot, but this, these are advances for the private sector. And we're going to include this article to the National Law Review, which really breaks it down nicely into a sort of chart so you can see how the old and new laws will work. Uh, this one's interesting. Deal. Yeah, that link is that's what that's really a major reason I want to see it in here, because that that the article has a, a comparison of key provisions, old and new. And um, I think it's telling. So this new law is intended to unify, you know, Saudi rules on commercial companies, professional and nonprofit companies all under one law. I think it's interesting that it replaces new laws that were introduced in 2015 and new laws were finished in 2019. You can see them trying to be responsive, trying to uh, you know, develop and, and install a, a regulatory environment that is attractive to investment, that you know, uh, eliminates hurdles to establishing a business, uh, any number of things that a, a potential investor um, is considering when they look at Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's interesting that it came so quickly on the back of these other ones because clearly they've gotten feedback. Mm-hmm. Said, okay, those are changes, that's fine, but we need these other things. And this is, I think, is intended to really really uh, bring everything together, bring it up to, uh, you know, what they think is the, you know, most accessible means possible and the most uniform codes possible because they really need to attract investment. So this is, that. This is, I think it's, I think it's interesting. And that's why it's a, a one big, I mean, it's a yellow. Uh, definitely look at the article. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit with this, uh, with Chris Johnson about this a few weeks back, Richard, just sort of in general. Um, but it would be good to have him back with us when the law is officially published before it's um, before it's enacted. But yeah, I mean, it sort of is very like like you just said to echo. I mean, it's sort of lean startup of Saudi to put some changes out there and then listen to what people say and then adjust. It's cool to see that. Well, um, outside of any investment proposition, the first thing you do is to look at the legal environment, and it's been a sort of little bit of a moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you know this will if it's simplified and it's easily accessible uh, and it's consistent across all all you know sources, then it's just going to be a much more much more a much easier easier access environment. Yeah, and an easier environment in which to invest, which is good. Um, Richard Yella number two. Salman Rushdie attack is called unacceptable to Islam, says Muslim World Chief. Uh, Mohammed Al Issa, Secretary General of the Muslim World League, called the attack on writer Salman Rushdie, quote, a crime that Islam does not accept. In an interview with Arab News on the side of his participation in a conference on interreligious dialogue in the Italian city of Rimini, he said, quote, Islam is against violence and can never admit any method of violence. Religious and intellectual issues, including phrases that may read in full or partly as offensive, cannot ever be dealt with in these violent ways. I don't have anything to add. I mean, that's what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, I think the as we've talked about in the 966, the Muslim World League has been a, a the leading platform for Saudi Arabia's and Mohammed bin Salman's preferred message of a moderate Islam. And, you know, it says, says a bit that, uh, you know, Muhammad Alisa was in Italian, in Italy for, you know, in a religious dialogue. He's doing a lot of these, a lot of, a lot of Saudis are doing a lot of these, but he in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the appropriate response. Uh, and, and it's nice to see. Uh, so, and I don't really think it needs much more comment, not anyway from me, but it's, it's, it's important that, you know, a mo- mes- message of moderation from Saudi Arabia get out there in terms of Islam. Mm-hmm. 
this has drawn a lot of negative attention toward Iran. Um, Richard, I, in my notes for this, I wrote, I don't really have anything to add. Violence is always wrong. <laughs> what happened is actually truly terrible. It happened in the United States, which pisses me off. Um, I just, um, I would like to draw people to a, a recent article in the Washington Post, and I'll try to remember to throw yet another link in there um, from, it was actually an op-ed from Jason Reslian. Um, I hope I'm saying his last name correct, about how he went to Iran in 2005 with Christopher Hitchens, my favorite columnist and writer of all time. Um, and it's just like a really interesting read. Uh, yeah, I don't know much to add to this, but um, good on the Muslim World League to sort of set the record straight here for this crime. Number three, uh, Pride of Ukraine, Yusik beats Joshua, keeps heavyweight belts. The AP reported this past week that Alexander Yusik kissed the blue and yellow flag of Ukraine and looked to the Saudi Arabian sky as he waited to discover if he had honored his war-torn country by retaining his world heavyweight titles. Six months ago, he was patrolling the streets of Kyiv with an automatic rifle and defending Ukraine from the invading Russians. I remember reading about this. Uh, inside the King Abdullah Sports City Arena, the still undefeated Usyk lived up to his billing as the sporting pride of Ukraine by beating Anthony Joshua in a closely fought rematch to keep his WBA, WBO, and IVF belts. Quote, I devote this victory to my country, my family, to my team, to all military defending this country. The 35-year-old Usyk said through a translator. This is such a cool story. Um, it reminds me of the Vitaly Klitschko, I think, is the mayor of Kiev, um, who was a previous heavyweight championship champion of the world. Boxing isn't as big in the United States anymore as it was. It's still really big in Europe. Um, what I think is really interesting is right after this fight, uh, Tyson Fury started salivating, saying, um, and in fact, he announced today that organizers have one week to come up with a huge purse and schedule a fight. September 1st is the deadline, um, <laughs> but he is ready to take on um, Usyk. So uh, that should be interesting. Uh, he has said, basically, if somebody doesn't come up with a lot of money to make it happen, he's going to stay retired. But I think everybody knows that he's just <laughs> just drumming up some interest in this. This is like every sport nowadays. Free agents make demands or, play, you know, the players make demands. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, Joshua said before the fight that he loved fighting in the U.S. I mean, the Saudi Arabia and uh, understood. Unfortunately, he's one for three now. Um, mm -hmm. One of the interesting, but it is kind of a, a fairy tale story for Usyk to to win this. You know, obviously with Ukraine and in, uh, in, you know, at war. Uh, in an undercard, this is interesting. Note an undercard of this fight. Two interesting things. One an undercard: a British Somali super bantamweight Rumla Ali uh, won the first sanctioned female professional professional boxing bout held in Saudi Arabia. The other interesting thing is, is this is all, all these events were headed, held in the Jeddah Superdome, which is could be kind of cool to see. And this is the Jeddah Superdome has a world record uh, for uh, a roof that spans more than 689 feet. Hmm. That is cool. Yeah, that was quite the event. I guess it was, was it late Friday night or late Saturday night? But that was quite the event. I mean, there was a lot of history made in Jeddah. Um, it was well, it was a, it was a split decision, I gather. And um, I'm not, a, you know, I don't watch a lot of boxing, much less pay to watch it. But uh, and I guess Mohammed bin Salman was there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a big deal. I mean, these are big events. This is a world world heavyweight championship. Mm -hmm. Three belts. Yep. Very cool. Yellow number four, Richard, Saudi 
Energy Ministry completes legal framework for the rollout of EV charging stations. Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Energy, in coordination with other related government agencies and in integration with the private sector, has launched the regulations for the rollout of electric vehicle charging stations so as to ensure quality, efficiency, and the protection of users and facilities across the kingdom, according to a report in Saudi Gazette. You know, uh, I guess according to studies, EV sales in the country are expected to expand, expand to 1.3 million electric vehicles between now and 2030. Um, like a lot of places, the, the charging infrastructure is not in place. You right. know, and this includes the U.S. Um, and the U.S. has, you know, 400,000 EVs were sold in 2021, but there are uh, we only have 6,000 DC fast electric charging stations in the U.S. And obviously there are 48,000 charging stations of all kinds, but in terms of fast charging. Right. Um, I thought this was interesting in the sense that, you know, they're trying to look ahead. Also, I think it's interesting. We've done two, we've done a couple uh, comments recently on the research development and innovation authority, uh, which is trying to organize and coordinate different entities as they delve into research or, or innovation, you know, these, any kind of uh, projects or initiatives, try not to have things conflict or overlap or duplicate. Um, when we were talking with, um, with uh, Dr. Sadov Tarani, deputy minister of investment, he, the ministry of investment is going to introduce a new program that will do the same thing with investment promotion. So, you know, you, you, your people know what other, other ministries are doing and they're not duplicating efforts. This EV team was interesting because it had, it had you know, Ministry of Municipal and Rural Affairs, Ministry of Transport and Logistics, Ministry of Commerce, Water and Electricity, Saudi Standards, uh, Saudi Energy and Efficiency Center, uh, Saudi Electric Company, uh, King Capsar, King Abdullah Petroleum Studies. You know, trying to bring together everybody who's involved, who might be involved with this, to get it right and do the do the rollout. Now, at, did you do any research? I, I looked to try and see how many EV stations currently exist in Saudi Arabia. I didn't. What's I the what's the I status? Couldn't, I couldn't find any reliable numbers. I mean, they ranged all the way from eighteen <laughs> to uh, to larger numbers. I guess Electromin, which is the sister to Petromin. Uh, has, uh, um, you know, engaged with uh, ABB e-mobility, which is a Swiss firm to put in a hundred uh, EV chargers uh, at the Electromen stations all around the country. But anyway, it's, it's very early in the process. And again, like the U S and many other countries, countries, it's, it's, it's uh, well behind what, it, what is expected to be the growth curve for actual electric vehicles on the road. Yeah, I would assume that a lot of the EVs that are in Saudi Arabia now, and I assume that number is fairly modest, but I assume that a lot of those are charged at home because um, right. it's still very novel. Um, Richard, I saw this yesterday, but California in the United States here is about to require 35% of automakers' new sales to be zero emission vehicles in 2026. That's a mm -hmm. lot. Um, I mean, especially with the charging infrastructure not in place. Um What's interesting too is there's the issue of having enough charging stations and then there's the issue of how those charging stations are powered um, because if coal is powering the, or you know whatever, oil are powering these charging stations, it's not terribly green or zero emission. So it's right. it's a huge change. And, and you can see that in all of these new, um, I, I, I should say existing automakers that are now changing 
and embracing electric vehicles, but it's taking them half a decade or longer to produce their first electric car because there's just a lot that changes. Um, there's um, a lot of legacy stuff that you got to get rid of. So agreed. And you got to make the commitment and California has, I mean, one of the interesting things about the EV charging outlets. So they're close to about 115,000 in the U S 41,000 plus of those are in California. That's good. So that's, I mean, California, California is leading the way and, you know, they'll, it, they'll start seeing real results if, if, you know, with those mandates, 30% by 2026. And if, you know, it looks like they're well underway and having an EV charging uh, infrastructure in, you're going to start seeing real changes in terms of climate and, and reducing emissions, that sort of thing. Um, Yella number five, number five, Capsark, which you just mentioned here, uh, sets new record in Saudi Arabia with five LED EBOM platinum certifications. The U.S. Green Building Council awarded King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, Capsark, in Saudi Arabia, five leadership in energy and environmental design lead platinum certificates under the existing building operation and maintenance EBOM rating system with a rating of over 80 points. Capsarks facilities are the only buildings in the kingdom to have achieved LEED EBOM platinum certification. Awesome story, Richard. We had the former president of Capsark, Adam Siminski, on the program a few months back. Just an incredible building. Um, really cool for Capsark, too, to lead the way here in, in Saudi Arabia. LEED certification, um, especially when you get to LEED platinum, is really highly sought after by architects and and builders, and especially now that I mean, we just talked about it, you know, as energy prices are high and, you know, wasting energy is not something anybody, any new builder wants to do. So this is really cool. Um, and it's very good for Capsarc. I couldn't find if there were other buildings with lead platinum in Saudi. Are they the only or um, only or, or do they just? Yeah. So, OK, well, but you know, got, it, it, it may be, you know, it may be a new construction because this is existing building operation and right. maintenance. So, I mean, there, there could I'm guessing there are maybe new construction. I mean, this Capshark building, it was opened in late 2017, designed by Zaha Hadid. I mean, it's amazing looking building. And and um, once again, we're talking about links. Lucian, I, I'm going to send you a design boom uh, article, which has a bunch of pictures of the 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 building and um you know hopefully it can go on uh the segment when we do youtube and also even with uh with the podcast it's just an amazing stunning building uh and it's fascinating to see that it's also you know uh you know it's such high marks in terms of energy use it's awesome we're gonna have photos of it too accompanying this segment because it's just so stunning um, one of Zaha Hadid's most famous works, just really cool. Um, Richard Yella number six, and this wraps it up for us, which we kind of, we kind of mowed through it this week, which is good. Saudi Arabia's crown prince inaugurates the Rua al Madina project near the prophet's mosque. Um, crown prince Mohammed bin Salman inaugurated the master plan for the Rua al Madina project that lies east of the prophet's mosque. The Saudi press agency reported on Wednesday that the project will increase the occupant capacity and be able to host 30 million Umrah pilgrims. The photos of the rendering of this project are impressive um, and look really cool. It very, very modern. We'll have some of these up. Um, spectacular looking. 
I, I, I did read, you know, I did read the article and looked at it. And I think it's interesting. I, I also, it makes, it makes so much sense. You have these major, major urban infrastructure, urban projects. You have Jebba Central, you have, you have the Riyadh, Royal Commission for Riyadh City, which is just remaking Riyadh. It's not surprising that you have this kind of investment, these kind of plans. Again, in Medina, especially, uh, it's not only uh, urban regeneration and urban renewal and new new design and that sort of thing. It's 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 a, a way to promote uh, tourism, and and you know uh, try and maximize uh, all these Umrah and Hajj pilgrims coming and you know making it inviting for them to stay and spend money. Forty seven thousand hotel rooms. Richard are coming in this uh, in this development. Um, some in the luxury segment. Open and green spaces will make up sixty three percent of the total land area, um, which is one point five million square meters. It's huge, um, and it looks again. What photos of it looks really modern and cool, but there's sort of a traditional flair to it a little bit. Um, Definitely, kind of hard to describe, but um, yeah. very cool. Yeah, I mean, this is. Um, I didn't see a price tag on this. <laughs> but I can't imagine it being inexpensive. Um, so, and that's something we'll they're going to have that. to watch. They're going to have to pay attention to because you know you can't you can't make it all upscale because you you know you lose the middle class, but also uh, you know well maybe you can make it all upscale if you have, if there's a market for it. But I'm guessing they'll have a whole range of of options, especially mm -hmm. with forty seven thousand keys uh, in terms of hotels rooms. Well, and I was also talking just generally about the budget to do all of this. Um, it seems like a pretty significant undertaking so um what isn't a significant undertaking in saudi arabia these well days? you got to think big you know what i mean you got to <laughs> shoot for the <laughs> shoot for the moon and then you end up in the stars if you, they, if you miss. <laughs> there you go they do that <laughs> or um, shoot for the stars and end up on the moon i'm not sure which, so, which. whichever one you're you're happy with that you just are <laughs> in end the up arena. over the moon <laughs> that's right the lean startup that's i guess that's maybe the uh the theme of this show this week richard shoot that... for the stars end up over the moon <laughs> <laughs> um this was a good one a short one we'll be back with a conversation next week again as i said and then the week after that richard will probably be back to a full episode if it's not the week after that we've got a little time off coming up here be nice to get more than five hours of sleep a night um so we'll yeah. see if that's a possibility but uh, no guarantees though when you get your body into a, a rhythm but um richard thank you very much good one thank you i love our guests and our guests are impressive and fascinating and it's always an education to, to, to have them on the 966 but and these are fun when we get just get to you know yap we just get to yap. As we've said from the beginning, this is what we would be doing anyway. Yes. Uh, this is an offshoot of our newsletter, which we've already plugged this week. But it's just if you want to learn about Saudi Arabia, don't go to Google News because you're going to get the same article sent to you over and over. Our <laughs> newsletter is highly and expertly curated, if we may say so ourselves. So subscribe to that at SUSTG.com. You just do it right there on the homepage. Um, Richard. It's the go-to go source, your front page for everything Saudi Arabia and in-depth too, back pages as well. It's, an, it's a tremendous service, if I do say so. We do say so. See you next week, Richard. All right, you too. Thanks.